Welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host. And today we're actually going to be joined by Mark Foley. He's with Acre Trader, and we had uh, Carter Morloy on recently. And that discussion was more over on the on the farmland side. And actually, even though its name is Acre Trader, they actually invest in timberland too. And I, I've definitely have had some questions from listeners about timberland as far as an investment and so on so i think this would be a great discussion so mark how are you i'm very well thank you paul and you're based in atlanta georgia is that correct correct but based on i think i hear an accent there i don't think you're originally from atlanta but tell me if i'm wrong uh you're right uh, i am from new zealand okay uh Christchurch, Wellington, Auckland, or somewhere else? Uh I grew up in Auckland. Okay, okay. Uh actually my youngest son and I were talking about making a trip to New Zealand maybe later this year. We haven't uh totally either gone yes or no, but we're definitely talking about it. So I, I I've been to Australia, but I've not been to New Zealand yet. The only issue with going to New Zealand Although it's better in Australia, is it's not a quick flight. No, but uh, you do travel overnight, and uh, the airlines are very well suited for that o- overnight travel. So it's. Uh, I was just in Australia three months ago, and it was an easy overnight yeah. flight. So. Yeah, yeah. I remember I went uh, to Australia back in two thousand, and I think I was eight hours into the trip, and I I thought to myself. Hmm, I still got six hours to go, but it, yeah. it was still fine. So, uh, but uh, well, we've heard you're from, grew up in Auckland, but let's let's start off with your background as far as, uh, were you on a farm there? Were you in the city? And then your uh, education and so on. Uh, so I grew up in the city, uh, went to Auckland University with a finance economics uh, background and ended up working for a company in New Zealand called Fletcher Challenge, who had uh, primary industries in pulp and paper, uh, plantation forestry, uh, oil and gas, and construction uh, businesses. And I was worked in the forestry business for, and the pulp and paper business for almost five years as an analyst. So tracking what's going on with pulp and paper prices, newsprint, uh, lumber, timber prices, and then came up to the US in 2000 and ended up with Jeremy Grantham at GMO. And he had just started a timber group. And I was an analyst on the investing team for that uh, GMO group for almost eight years. And as an analyst, you're you're essentially, like you s- indicated, you're checking out what is the price prices for timberland, what's the trends for lumber, and so on. Is that right, or expand on that a little bit? Uh, so twofold, it's evaluating what's going on in the the larger market. So what are the global trends? What are the local trends for uh, lumber prices, uh, timber prices? but also assisting when we are starting to look at an acquisition, gathering data on the regional and local markets that we're going to be investing in. So even though uh, logs, pulp and paper uh, traded globally, 
we also have to really focus on the regional market that we're going to be investing in. Is this a pro is this a, a base that we can see our investment performing over our hold? And so I know out in where I grew up, I grew up in Washington State, Pacific Northwest, which you know, you know, a hundred years ago was you know, mostly timberland, and then a lot of it was clear cut and so on. Um, I know British Columbia, Pacific Northwest, they started exporting the logs to China and to other areas. Was that a trend that is just in the last 10 years, or has that trend been going on longer than that? So in the case of New Zealand, we were uh, exporting logs to China, to Japan and Korea, sorry, in the early 90s. And then China came along 2000 uh, onwards. In the Pacific Northwest, Korea and Japan have always been a long-term uh, market for wood products out of the Pacific Northwest. China came into the Pacific Northwest market after the global financial crisis. So 2010-11, we saw uh, exports to China really pick up in that time period. But the Asian market has always been a, a market that we have tracked either from New Zealand or Australia or from the Pacific Northwest. Okay. But in the U.S. market, you know, again, I grew up in that area, Washington, Oregon, California, a large soft pine, dog fur, ponderosa pine, et cetera, et cetera. But now a lot of the forestry operations and you're probably going to tell me I'm wrong, but it seems like it's more based down in the southeast. Um, am I right? Am I wrong? Am I just on the right track? Uh, the southeast is the largest mark, the, the largest producer of uh, wood products in the U.S. just because of its uh, a scale and uh, size of the acreage. But the Pacific Northwest is still a very relevant market. And same with the Northeast. But uh, in those three markets, we're dealing with multiple different species that all end up in different uh, facets of our lives. So the South is seeing more of loblolly pine. It's a native species to the region. But for housing, construction, uh, the internal aspect of the house, whereas out in the Pacific Northwest and in the Northeast, we're dealing with uh, Douglas fir, cedar, uh, sometimes uh, more appearance grade wood. And then when we get into the Northeast, we have the oak, the maple, cherry, uh, walnut, multitude of different, again, uh, indigenous species, but different markets and different end uses. In and, and then Canada, is most of the lumber operations Canada mostly British Columbia, or is there quite a bit over on the east side of the of Canada too? There's a fair bit of production and uh, forests on the east side. The Canadians will often come into the U.S. and buy raw log, transport it back across the border, and then transport the lumber back to the U.S. <laughs> so, you know, well, that's so we we gain. I guess we gain a little and lose a little in that transaction, perhaps. But uh, now you were so you were with GMO for you said five years or eight years or how long were you there? Uh, for eight years, and that was primarily institutional. 
clients, foundations, pension funds, uh, endowments, ultra high net worth investors. And that was a lot of very large uh, industrial transactions that were taking place when the pulp and paper companies were deciding to uh, divest their timberlands because the stock price that they were receiving on Wall Street wasn't reflecting the true value of the land that they owned. So they sold uh, millions and millions of acres uh, in the period up until 2006, okay. which we acquired and, for our institutions. And then where did you end up after that then? Uh, then I went to US Trust and yeah. within US Trust, which at that stage was owned by, Merrill, by Bank of America, they had a large uh, internal group managing trust assets. And these trust assets were farms, forests, uh, residential, commercial real estate. So I worked in that group building out a an investment program for the clients of Bank of America and US Trust to hand, handle separately managed accounts. So smaller offerings in the range of 5 million up, but building a diversified portfolio of timberland and farmland. Okay. And so you were you were actually involved in the farmland side of it too, not just the timberland? I worked with the farmland side from the standpoint of uh, research and analysis. On the timberland side, I was directly involved in sourcing and modeling and visiting the Timberland acquisitions. So for those smaller investors, now they still may be fairly high net worth, but for those smaller investors, was their investments mostly in the Southeast or was it spread around the US or where would they typically be looking for investments? If we, so we would propose a portfolio, uh, a diversified portfolio. So we would have uh, one to two, maybe three investments in the U.S. South across multiple states, and then we would we would like to have one investment in the Pacific Northwest and one investment in the Northeast. So we're uh, getting great diversification, great optionality in terms of uh, where we would harvest wood, because each of those markets are not correlated that strongly to each other. So we get uh, greater diversification benefits and risk management too. And was that investment just to one investor or was it sort of pulled together and you brought in multiple investors? Most of the time it was one investor who would uh, form the LLC that would own the, the assets and we would manage it on their behalf. Uh, so internally we would put together the management plan for each of the properties, the budgets, the harvesting, uh, direction that we were going to give to the manager, and we would be responsible for uh, undertaking all that activity. But it was primarily just a single investor. And I'm, I'm just curious, because farmers, I think all farmers understand price per acre. So, you know, in Iowa, good corn ground maybe right now is twelve dollars to $15,000 an acre. When you're dealing with timber, and I, I guess I'll I'll sort of ask the three regions, so the Southeast, the Pacific Northwest, and the Northeast, what would be a typical range of value per acre for those for those particular timber ground? So in the US South, for a, uh, a property that wouldn't be considered uh, recreational, so probably 
500 acres and above in size, you would be looking at between $1,700 to $2,800 per acre. And again, it really comes down to the age of the trees and uh, are they young trees putting on a lot of growth? Is it a more mature forest? So there's, uh, the evaluation of the trees will come into the total value of the property that you're buying. In the Pacific Northwest, you're looking at probably 3000 to $6,000 an acre, again, depending on the region and the age of the trees. And then in the uh, Northeast, you are looking at between 1000 to $2,000 an acre because you've okay. got uh, slower growth rates. It's natural forests, so you've got a multitude of different species out there. You're not... Uh, harvesting the same intensity that you are in the south of the Pacific Northwest. So, And then as far as, like you say, the age of the tree is sort of going to determine when they can harvest the tree. How quickly does a tree mature in the southeast versus, let's say, the Pacific Northwest? So the standard uh, rotation for a pine plantation in the U.S. South is, is 30 years. And so once a tree goes in the ground, we will do a first thinning activity at uh, age 15, another thinning at age 22. In both those cases, we are taking out about a third of the standing trees. And then we will final harvest around year 28 to 32. So we do have flexibility with the crop in terms of where we uh, time that activity. In the Pacific Northwest, the, the age or uh, standard trees is between 40 to 45 years for Douglas fir, and you will probably and you may do a thinning around year 35. Okay. But uh, the the uh, and again, it all comes down to uh, the site that you're buying. Again, it's it's all driven by the productivity of the soil that you're uh, planting the trees on or buying the trees on. And so in in the southeast, it's primarily pine, and then in the Pacific Northwest, dug fir, some pine, and cedar, and then, like I say, in the northeast, it's it's a lot of different uh, hardwoods. Yes, and uh, there's we have a few softwoods mixed in there too, but it's the, the 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 real value in the northeast is going to be those high value hardwoods that uh, there's a multitude of different grades and scales that you can apply to the hardwoods. And uh, there's situations of where groups will come in and buy individual logs or maybe five or six high value logs for a specific purpose. And they'll, that's all they were wanting. So we merchandise a lot more in the, Pacific, in, in the Northeast than we would say in the US South. Right, right. It was interesting. My the house I originally grew up in, uh, where I was born and raised, it burned down in 1968. And we had a very beautiful black walnut tree right next to the house. And when the house burned down, it killed that tree. And my dad took that and got, you know, all this different lumber out of it. And, and then we moved into a new house a few years later, used it to build bookcases and stairwells and so on. It was some of the most beautiful wood, I thought so. Whereas a 
two by four is just a two by four. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, so you were with US Trust and then where'd you end up after that? Uh, uh, private equity firm in Atlanta called Domain Capital. And uh, we had, uh, I was brought in to help uh, with a Timberland investment group that was for sale. And how long were you with them? Uh, I was with them three years. Okay, okay. And then ultimately you ended up with Acre Trader. So how long you've been with Acre Trader then? Uh, a year and a half. Okay. And I, I know that you've bought some ground, but explain to the listeners out there the process that you go through identifying and then how you end up, uh, you know, um, getting it invested by the investors and so on. So we have uh, an extensive network of uh, regional brokers and managed forest management firms who through either their websites or just through personal relationships, a lot of these people live locally, they cover maybe say North Arkansas or uh, the state of Georgia. Uh, there's no sort of one group that covers the entire US in terms of uh, Timberland uh, marketing and sales, but it's a lot of regional groups that we deal with, local uh, brokers, and we will see a lot of property. I think last year that our team saw over 100 timberland uh, opportunities come across our desk. And these are trees that are just being put in the ground. Some of them are hardwood properties, uh, all types of different uh, investments. And we have a certain specific uh, theme that we like. We like something that has some harvesting opportunities, but it's in a solid market good infrastructure, we can get access to the property. So there's certain factors that we start to apply and screen these deals. And then uh, we try to understand what information we can get on the property. Is it being institutionally managed? If so, there's often really good data, maps, photography, uh, and harvest records kept. If it is maybe privately owned, what's the history? of that ownership. And then we'll sort of pull together some pro forma numbers, uh, maybe a harvesting plan. We'll also utilize the Acres uh, program on uh, through Acre Trader to do some desktop analysis. But at the end of the day, I have to be out and look at that property. So I get in a car or airplane and fly and drive and see the property and spend a day or two boots on the ground. Yeah, yeah. And so how many how many um, parcels or how many property investments have you done here in the last year or so? We have done eight so to date. Okay. And what would be the typical size and where were those at? Uh, so these are all in the U.S. South. And the typical size is between between our typical size is between two and five million. We have done one a little bit larger. Uh, but that's sort of the range, the niche range that we find that's what we term the inefficient aspect of the industry. So that would probably be like in a thousand to maybe 1500 acre range. Is that about yes. right? Yeah, okay. a thousand, thousand to 2000 acres, depending on which state we're in and sort of uh, the price per acre, but that's sort of where we land. And, and 
when you purchase those, are, are you leaning toward, hey, you want to have a harvest event fairly early, or does it just depend on what the deal is and, and whether it makes sense, even though it might be more of a long-term hold? We currently are focused on properties that have uh, at least two or three regular harvesting events over a 10-year period. So okay. that might be year three, six, uh, and seven. And the, the great thing about timber is we have this optionality aspect to the asset class. So we have in our mind a view today of we're going to do this harvesting activity on this property in these years. We may find that we will accelerate that. We'll bring it forward a year or two, or we'll do 50% this year, 50% next year, or we'll push it out. And we may harvest some bottomland hardwoods instead. Instead of doing a final harvest in one area that we had planned, we're going to do a thinning instead because the market has moved and we're getting currently a better price for the products than we would uh, if we'd undertook the other activity. And we'll just hold that in inventory basically on the property. But in the meantime, it's growing still. Well, certainly we know during the pandemic, you know, the price of lumber sort of skyrocketed, at least for a while. Now I know yep. it's come back down. Um, now, when you're putting together the deal, if the harvest isn't going to occur for three, five years, I assume that you also have to sort of build in some working capital in into the deal? Yes. Yes. So we will, uh, as part of the investment process, determine uh, our costs of holding the property and the activities that we're going to be undertaking on the property before any revenue occurs. And then we'll factor that into the analysis and into the final purchase price. And I'm assuming that on these purchases, you have you probably haven't really been looking at any recreational opportunities where you could carve it off into 50 acre lots or 20 acre lots and sell those off. You're really just looking primarily on the on the timber side, or or do you look at that? We look at that. Uh, we like to explore all avenues for revenue, but at the end of the day, the the investment thesis has to be grounded in the timber that we're buying. So, if that market doesn't eventuate, or if that market slows down, uh, we don't want that to be the driving force behind the. Uh, investment decision. The timber has to support the deal, and then everything else that we encounter will be upside. So okay. we do we do focus on uh, what is going on in the local market from the standpoint of uh, where are we in relation to a major metropolitan area? Where are we in relation to business expansion in the surrounding counties? Is there a new plant being built? Or is there the highway being expanded from two lanes to four lanes? All these things are not going to lead to an immediate uptick in value, but over the long term, they're going to add a couple of hundred basis points to that return if things eventuate and we are patient and uh, just buy based on pure timberland fundamentals. Okay. Okay. And then, um, I think timberland's a little bit like farmland in that the correlation, let's say, to the to the um, stock market is not the same. You know, it's not that correlation to one. It's sort of maybe when the market's hot, 
Timberland maybe not as good, but then vice versa? Or what is the correlation to other investments? It's almost zero, maybe 0.2, maybe negative 0.2. It's, it, and the reason being, we have this biological growth that is independent of everything and allows us as the manager to have great flexibility in what we do with the asset class. So uh, we we can accelerate harvesting, delay harvesting. We can look at selling into the recreational market. We can look at aggregating land and selling into the institutional market. We can uh, undertake a whole range of activities that are just not correlated to anything else that's going on in the market. But the biology of the forest is the big, the big diversification benefit. Yeah, no, no, totally agree. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message, and we'll come back and talk about maybe interest rates and, and a carbon capture and so on. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Han Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, RoboAgar Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, RoboAgar Finance. Welcome back everyone to the Farm CPA Podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neeford, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Mark Foley from AcreTrader. Um, you know, we've had a rapid increase in interest rates over the last year and a half. Has that negatively impacted the valuation of forest land, or is it really maybe not that big of a deal? It's not. I don't think it's necessarily a big deal if you are looking at the underlying fundamentals of the biology of the forest. What we have seen, or what I have observed, is the recreational, or what I would call the lifestyle uh, acquirer of land, and it's probably tracks of two, three hundred acres. When money was cheap, they were using that to finance their acquisitions, and. They could afford to uh, pay the interest out of their own, uh, not not related to the forest, because when you're buying something that's small, you may not necessarily have regular harvesting events. It could be, be a more lumpy cash flow. That market on the timberland side has gone somewhat quiet in the last six months as interest rates have really uh, ramped up considerably compared to where they were a year ago. Uh, but if you're a longer-term investor, I think uh, the interest rates will be short-term. There'll be a short-term uh, impact. What is more of an interesting 
piece to focus on is what the longer term view on inflation is. Yeah. Timber has a very, and farmland has very strong correlations to inflation. And we have seen in the last two or three years, a lot of institutional money flowing into the asset class because they are seeing, they have a longer term, more stable horizon than say maybe the individual investor. And uh, as part of their portfolio diversification, they have an allocation of say two to 5% of the total endowment or total foundation to real assets. And a lot of it is just through the diversification benefits, land, they're not building any more of it. And uh, just the outlook is somewhat positive for the asset class for the next 10 to 15 years based on demographics and housing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we still haven't, uh... You know the the 07 through probably well, 08 through 2012 that that lack of housing. I mean we're still trying to work our way through that. So yeah. uh, um, now over on the farmland side, I know I've had some discussions on the podcast in regards to carbon capture. Or, you know, there's so many different words for carbon now. We got carbon intensity and carbon capture and so on. I know on the forest side, you know there are people out there are companies willing to pay you know for that fact that the forest actually creates carbon that is captured and so on is that affecting your analysis or is that sort of again maybe the cherry on the top uh i would see that as being the longer term cherry on the top it's something that we don't factor in explicitly in the financials when we're evaluating a property but we do talk to uh carbon groups, what we are seeing are definitely groups out there with significant uh, capital buying cut over or recently harvested or uh, marginal farmland and replanting it with mixed species and using that as uh, the carbon sequestration uh, vehicle. And they're not really to the extent that we've seen with the uh, bare land buying actively managed forests. Now, there are groups out there, uh, one this year called a new that bought a timber investment management organization in, in its entirety to get access to, to its land base. But uh, that was a somewhat of a unique situation that will only benefit me as being an active timberland owner when some carbon group comes along and buys one point over a million acres and is going and has announced that they're reducing harvesting by 80 percent over the foreseeable future on that land that's only going to be positive for me that, that's true because that's less supply and the exactly. demand's still going to be there so you're yeah. going to be able to soak up part of that demand yeah okay okay um is there what what is the current value maybe per acre of forest land for carbon? And I know that's probably a wide range, but I'm just curious what the average value might be. Oh, it changes. Uh, like I've seen numbers between eight dollars a ton to twenty dollars a ton. Uh, lower than that, uh, it's. It's very difficult in the US because there's no national 
program in place for the registration and the selling and buying of carbon credits. California is its own market. And Europeans are, again, a different market. They have New Zealand has a very active market, same with Australia. So, that, But there's no sort of one standard within the US yet. That and you can like get, I say, eventually, even if they bring that in, that's going to help you not hurt you. So, yeah. so that's definitely yeah. true. So, yeah. okay. Well, you know, again, I try to keep my podcast to that 30 to 45 minute range. So uh, now I'm going to ask some of my questions I always ask. Uh, did you have, uh, what was your mentor? Or how did you get into, uh, you know, who was the mentor that helped you along on this process? So uh, it was really the foundation of working at GMO. So you, just talking to Jeremy Grantham on a regular basis about, his views on uh, quantitative analysis and the markets and and just talking to somebody who has had a long history in the investing business and it's who has seen cycles, good cycles yes. and bad cycles. But then on the timber front, it would be, I would have, have to say the three core partners, uh, Bob Sol uh, was the investment uh, director of the program. It was Eric Odlifson who started out in the business in 82 uh, with institutional buyers and basically said to me, uh, don't buy anything that you haven't seen in person or, or somebody's seen in person that you trust. You just don't buy anything based on uh, a piece of paper that somebody sent you. You've got to physically get out and look at the property and really understand what you're doing. And then uh, Eva Gregor, just from the standpoint of the how to build a team successfully quickly. So it was oh, all, the, it, it, it was just the work that we undertook at GMO and just being surrounded by uh, a team that really was able to take advantage of the transition from the institutional Timberland owners selling to the institutional uh, pension funds endowments buying. Okay. And, um, do you have any time for any hobbies? Are you a rugby fan? I mean, you're from New Zealand, so I got I got to ask if you're a rugby fan. I follow the All Blacks. Uh, I follow cricket in the summer, and then uh, I am an avid sports watcher. Of uh, being based in Boston with GMO for the 2000 to 2017 period, uh, the Red Sox, Patriots, Boston Bruins, and Celtics were all sports teams that I still follow to this day. Okay. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I will admit I've watched cricket a few times and I still have no clue how, what the rules are. So <laughs> I, 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 I will admit that. And, you know, on rugby, my youngest son played three years of high school rugby. And so I got to know those rules. I understand rugby and it's actually probably my favorite sport to watch. It, uh, if you're able to see uh, an in international game, so when New Zealand plays Australia live and you're in the stadium and you've got 120,000 fans screaming at the top of their voice, it's it's quite spectacular. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was in Ireland back in about, I got to think, when was that, 19... Maybe 1998, 1999, the All Blacks played Ireland, 
Ireland was ahead at halftime, but they ended up losing. Uh, uh, I can't remember by a couple tries or something. So, um, but it, it was fun. It is. And then when I was in, when I was in Australia in 2000, they had the, I'm going to call it the World Cup for for rugby was going on at that point in time, and so we would watch it on on TV. So that that was a lot of fun too. So yeah, and uh, we have a World Cup uh, coming up this year in France, I believe. Okay. And then, uh, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Uh, from the investing standpoint, it's more of the fact that I'm worried that people outside of AcreTrader are going to find the attractiveness of the asset class and start to come in and compete for me on my deals. <laughs> uh, I'm fine with the institutional money coming in and putting $50 million or $100 million down because when they do that, they often do not need the 50,000 acres that they are looking to buy. They will, they've identified 45,000 as being core. So I want them to see Acre Trader as being the group that can come in and provide the liquidity when they're wanting to sell that. But uh, I want people to invest, but people to invest through uh, the Acre Trader platform and uh, not doing it themselves. Yeah, no, no, I think uh, I, I think you guys have done a very good job of that. So I think it'll definitely continue. But you're right, potentially there might be customer, I mean competitors. So so we'll just have to see. And then uh, finally, what's what's your you know, typically ask about the success in farming? But I guess I'll I'll ask uh, what what is your definition of success in timber investing? I suppose success I would define as being at the end of the day when I'm coming to exit out of the asset class or the property that is in a better condition, it has better information and better data than when I first acquired it. And it's almost like buying a diamond in the rough. I'll come and clean it up, uh, put the appropriate management in place and then turn around and sell it that it's uh, a grade one property for the next buyer. Yeah, no, that's that's a good definition. Uh, I, I think a lot of us would would appreciate that. So, is there anything else you would like to add, Mark, before we sign off? Uh, only that uh, Timberland is a it's not a quick rich it's not a quick get rich scheme. It's a long term hold, and you should be thinking about it uh, from I think a minimum of eight to 10 years or more. In that time frame, you will be able to uh, let the biology, which generates about 60 to 65% of the total return over that period, really come into play and do its job. Yeah, it just, just takes time. Yep, patience. Okay, well, in my um, work life, uh, patience maybe wasn't my uh, best quality, but uh, as I've gotten older, it's gotten better. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, Mark, thanks a lot for taking time to uh, to talk with us today. And this, again, this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. Uh -huh.